This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. One of the ways in which uh, we should we should really work at the uh, race issue is to actually do nothing first mm-hmm. and to sit and listen and ask more questions uh, than, than provide answers for. And that question asking process involves doing a lot of study on the history of race with respect to how it worked out locally in our own community. I think one of the problems is that we we're trying to solve the race problem or issue nationally, uh, which I think is pretty, pretty useless because racial injustice historically is is exercised and operationalized locally. Uh, So what really matters is not the race issue in America, but the race questions or issues in your neighborhood, in your county, uh, in your city, town and state. And that's the place we have to start is, is looking at at. What are the racial tensions in my community? Uh, Sit, listen, ask questions, unpack the history, and then think about ways to move towards solutions based based on that local context. find that um, a lot of people who, I guess, enter the waters of what is called racial reconciliation, or they just hear about these issues and they want to do something as a Christian, um, do you find that many of them are kind of starting from today, like how people are treated differently today, and let's try to work forward? And like, is that even possible? Can can you ignore the, the local history that you've suggested and just say like, okay, yeah, that was them, but right now, here's the situation. Let's try and fix that. Is that does that seem silly or productive? What for you? Yeah, I think I think there's a there's a rush to want to fix it, which I think is the problem. I would argue that you don't know what to fix quite yet unless you've really studied the local history. I think for most most of Americans tend to think about the history this way, regardless of, of your neighborhood. Uh, there was slavery. And then there was a civil rights movement. And then there's 2022. Right. Uh, and, and there's so many other, other issues and, and, and issues and topics and questions and all sorts of, of things that you need to explore between that history. I think so much of our, our discourse regarding racial reconciliation is often missing the necessary work of unpacking what happened in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, which actually speaks to the racial issues that we have today, uh, more so than what happened, I'd say, even during slavery, Reconstruction, or even at the peak of the Civil Rights Movement. Actually, the 70s and 80s and 90s really inform more about the issues that we have uh, currently than was the past. So I think Again, I think that we, we need to, to, to move toward reconciling slower because we don't know what we need to reconcile quite yet unless we've really unpacked what happened in our own community locally. And, and the reason I, I say this is that it actually empowers people locally to mm-hmm. own their histories and figure out a way uh, to, to move toward 
what I what I call racial solidarity. Uh, I, ch- I choose that word, that phrase, rather than racial racial reconciliation. Racial solidarity, where you sort of are, are looking for ways to work together uh, mm. to serve to serve the common good. Yeah, so going back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s, or maybe even 70s, 80s, and 90s, what do you see as the cardinal history that that informs a lot of race relations, r- racial issues today, tensions included? Yeah, so one of the major failures of the entire country, local communities, states, the church, politicians, the business community, any mediating institution in America, the big failure in the 1970s was to act like Jim Crow never happened. Mm -hmm. Instead of working toward a process where we were actively transitioning from decades of of systemic and and racial injustice to, to a context of racial liberation and healing, we didn't really transition. We just sort of stopped and hit the reset button and act like, well, I guess it's over. Mm-hmm. And I think that there was a sort of piecemeal approach that that really um, did, did not help us at all. Because on the one hand, on the one hand, especially in the South, you had a lot of conservative evangelical Christians who were resistant to some of those changes for lots of reasons. And then you also had the sort of uh, sequestering of the black community into neighborhoods uh, where they, they lost their interaction with, with so many other parts of the culture. And mm-hmm. that, that really was a, was a recipe for failure. So by the time we got to the 1980s, you had an extremely polarized uh, uh, political and social and economic context where the black community was sort of sequestered from from the people that had the power to actually bring change. And this is mainly sort of the uh, white middle class community who held so many of the offices in in local government and who were leading businesses and things like that to sort of work together to figure out how do we how do we transition from from Jim Crow to racial equity or, or, or liberation or freedom and we we just never did that. And what we what we have been doing is is incrementally, I'd say, in a very piecemeal approach, trying to do that, and it and it actually never worked. And what we saw was the failure of that erupt in Ferguson, Missouri. Hmm. It's funny you cite the '80s as like this this pivot point, and I think I've heard a lot of people lately, especially talking about political polarization, they point back to the 80s as the golden era of conservatives and Democrats, you know, Republicans and Democrats working together, you know, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan getting drinks together. Um, but nobody's really talking about the the politics of black America and how they're interacting in those discussions at that time. And you're, you're saying that this is the very point that they're kind of being cut out or... Is it that they're not included in these in in national politics? I mean, I think of Jesse Jackson and obviously Reverend Al Sharpton coming to fame at that point. Uh, were those the 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 spurts and fits and starts of people trying to get into that national conversation and help the United States have a, a more holistic conversation? Or how would you frame their the interaction with black black politicians in the eighties uh, with the, the national situation? 
Yeah. So, so what you had is, is lots of uh, black uh, leaders, like you mentioned, uh, Al Sharpton, uh, Jesse Jackson, who were on a national stage uh, making the case that we need to do more on race issues, but the racial problems were local. Hmm. And and although they may have flown across the country every now and then and, right. and made an appearance uh, at you know any particular tragedy, what really needed to happen were people on the ground in their own neighborhoods and communities actually figuring out how to make progress as we as we moved out of out of the Jim the Jim Crow era. And so what you had when you had really sort of codified solidified, I'd say, by the 1980s was was the the racial polarization that was the consequence of the suburbanization of the white middle class. And by the time we got mm-hmm. to the 1980s, it was pretty clear that the white middle class was geographically separated mm-hmm. from the black community, including the black middle class. And so the the, the mm-hmm. sort of two groups that needed to work together to really bring the best solutions, especially to the truly disadvantaged in inner cities, were sort of cooperative uh, networks between the black middle class and the white middle class, but they didn't live near each other. They didn't go to the same churches. Your kids weren't going to school together. You sort of had another sort of separate and and equal uh, state of affairs. And so and so, again, locally, in local cities, local counties, no work was being done and, and too much reliance, I think, on solutions from, from Washington, D.C. And, and, and the national stage. But anyone who works in politics and government knows that it's the state and local level. That's where things get done. Uh, we talk about those things in terms of, in terms of uh, framing them in D.C., but the work of, of putting those things into practice is actually done at, at the at the state and local level. And that's what we did not have. And I, I would say that's what we still don't have uh, mm. to this day. So I wonder, you, you have worked with uh, a church on racial reconciliation in the, the South, and I wonder, just turning really quickly, thinking about biblical theology and what scripture teaches, obviously not on this issue, but uh, more broadly on the issue, um, where's your kind of go-to place or you, the, the series of thoughts happening in scripture that guide your thinking on this topic, even though, even maybe the local issue, which I'd say is a strong thesis throughout the Torah, thinking locally as well? So I would I would probably start with with thinking about unpacking Jesus teaching on on forgiveness and and to, to sort of think about what it means in the context of, of, of being forgiven for for our own sins uh, to sort of think about those in the context of, of the Lord's Prayer uh, to think about those in, in the in the context of of uh, this this orientation and, and disposition uh, that that we are to forgive others in the same way that God God forgives us, and to think about what that means in practice, right? Uh, which really, in, in my estimation, has has more to do with 
not coming together and, and singing Kumbaya and having mm-hmm. a, a, a joint, a joint service where white people, you know, you know, the sort of white people bring their casseroles and black people bring uh, soul food. Right. And then we sit around and just uh, hug each other uh, and, and have the sort of pasture swap uh, every February, right. During, during black history month. Uh, but to really think about the, the sort of Greek a sense of, of forgiveness um, as, as dismissal and release and pardon. Hmm. Right? And so, and so it, it's this idea that, that you're coming together for the purpose of, of no longer holding it against the person, the group um, that, that committed the offense. You might say it this way, you're going to let it go. And this is what a lot of people are going to struggle with, right? Because there's mm-hmm. this sense of, well, what about justice, right? Mm. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, do you, do you really want, I mean, do you want God to treat you justly or right. do you want God to let it go? I mean, uh, or I would say it this way, would you prefer mercy over justice or justice over mercy, right? Uh, you're going to choose, you're going to choose mercy. Uh, you're going to choose God letting it go. And so, and so I think, I think there is this sort of cultural sense in which, which is distinct from the Christian one. There's this cultural sense of an eye for an eye, right? You have to, you mm-hmm. somehow you got to, we have to pay this back. People need to feel hurt. They need to feel the hurt that I felt in order for us to sort of achieve some parity or some sense of, of, of reconciliation. And I, I, don't, I don't think that the, the Bible really moves us toward the sense that the offender needs to feel the pain that I felt when I was offended. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, it seems that, that uh, the one who was in the position to to offer pardon and release and 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 forgiveness is in the position to to let it go to release uh, the, the the offender from the obligation of of owing this this debt of transmission hmm. and so when I when I sort of look at the the ways in which uh, forgiveness and pardon, uh, sort of release is is laid out in in Matthew twenty six and Mark one and Luke one and Luke three and I mean Acts two, uh, Acts twenty six, uh, Colossians chapter uh, chapter one verse fourteen. I mean these are the sorts of, of of places where I think we have to actually have a biblical mind and I would say not a Western or American one. Right. Uh, where where you actually want to 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 um, I mean, if it's true that that we have this redemption that is derived from the forgiveness of sins, as it says in Colossians one fourteen. But what does it mean for me to experience that and then offer that to others? Hmm. And so this this idea of of release and pardon and 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 letting it go is is part and parcel to that to that practice. One of the ways that I, I I encourage people to think about this as I as I wrap up this point 
is that you essentially want to treat other people the exact same way that God treats you. Hmm. Right. Which, you know, not, not a profound point. Someone may have said that before. Right. Um, but that's when, when we enter the race discussions, the, the burden actually is on is on the, the black community to to display these magnificent aspects of redemption in the gospel by pardoning and, and releasing and 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 letting it go. And I, I would say, especially in, in the South, you have this sort of white Christians are in this position, which they are not used to at receiving mercy mm. and, and to encourage them to humble themselves and enter into relationships where they're the recipient of grace and mercy rather than the, the dispensers of grace and mercy. I mean, so much of their history has been, we send out the mercy, we send out the, 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 the missionaries, right? We, we send them out. But in this context, if you're white in the South, you're actually on the receiving end of, of grace and, and, and mercy uh, because of the definition and, and the way that forgiveness is used in, in the Bible. I wonder if you would, it seems like what you're saying entails a um, truth in order for reconciliation. So it's not you know, part of the investigating the history of your local past is because there are particularities that need to be said out loud. This, this is what, you know, my grandparents, great parents did. Um, and this is what I need forgiveness from. This is what I participated in. Is that, is that go hand in hand or is that something that's separable from what you're talking about? Well, I mean, we are, we are people who, who come from communities uh, we come from families. We come from histories. We come from stories. I think we see in in, in the Old Testament, uh, for example, in Nehemiah nine, where where there was this connection to the forefathers, and there was an appeal to have one's sins spoken about and referenced to in light of the transmissions of the forefathers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think. Because we come from communities and histories, uh, we we have an opportunity, I think, to really put on display the ways that God encourages us to see ourselves connected to a long history of being a part of a people group. And and I think you know the 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 racial reconciliation particularly for, for Christians, is a wonderful opportunity, is a wonderful a context for putting that on display, uh, that we are part of the larger community right. of God's people, and God and God has always encouraged his people to do whatever they need to do to, to, to reconcile and make right and to address the issues that they've done to, to each other in this generation and ones in the past. And so, so much of that requires education about what happened. You might think mm-hmm. about it this way. We, we have a better understanding of what it means to be a Christian because we know the history of God's people, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we don't understand the New Testament without, well, without understanding the Old Testament, 
right? The Old Testament informs our understanding of of the New Testament. And so why would God give us a book with stories and histories and say that, hey, you're connected to those people and those people's Mm -hmm. victories, your victories and their, their transgressions are also your transgressions. And that spirit of seeing ourselves sort of socially located uh, with a, with a group of people that got us to this point, I think could be could be really really helpful. So I can hear people thinking right now as they're listening to this, saying. But I didn't do anything, right? I, I I didn't. I'm not racist. I don't commit any racist acts. Um, and just that kind of hyper individualism. And I think um, what you're describing is kind of a, a general lack of sense of history, like a generalized lack of sense of history, which Americans are kind of famous for around the world. Um, but also that that very specific. I mean, I think. I I remember hearing reports of lynchings and like the specifics that were happening at lynchings and people like taking parts of the body home and keeping it in jars on their shelves and posing with viviosected bodies. And um, at some point it crossed over some boundary where I thought like, oh, it, this is terrorism. Like this isn't just, this isn't just murder. This is like terrorizing an entire uh, group of people. And I wonder if, People and, and I, there's a double-edged sword here. You, you could say the modern person could say, like, well, yeah, I didn't participate in any terrorism. I've never done anything like that, and I would be horrified by it as well. Um, but it sounds like what needs to happen is for people to say these were my people who did commit acts of terrorism, of which today we would, you know, we would decry in the public square as terrorism. Um, how, how have you helped people? overcome that that dualism in their mind that, that I didn't do this, but I belong to this people who did this. And therefore I need to be involved in this process. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think think because we're Americans, we we often think of ourselves as as individuals disconnected from history. We often think of our birth date as the hmm. beginning of our our maturing. In the mm. world, but it's not. I mean, you're born into a family and given a last name, and not only that, so much of how kids are raised in our culture is that you're often told, "Hey, you know, you're a Johnson, so act this way, right? Or you're mm-hmm. a Bradley, so make sure that you do this or that." Hey, you, you, you know, uh, we're Dallas Cowboys fans. We don't like the Steelers, right? So it's interesting that we have this this amazing ease. And, and one of my friends, uh, Stephen Christopher. Uh, in the Greek Orthodox Church, raised this point, and I have not forgotten it: that we have a, we we find ways to create a sense of belonging to community with sports, hmm. but we can't do with anything else. So, so people will raise their children to be Steelers fans from day one, hmm. right? They'll put them in a onesie, uh, they'll give them Steelers toys and things like that. And then here's what's interesting, right? The kid will be 10 years old. And 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 the kid will be telling a story about the Steelers winning the Super Bowl in 1967. And we'll right. use 
and we'll use the word we. We'll use the third person. <laughs> well, you know, we won that game back. And I'm like, kid, you weren't even alive. Yeah. Lit- liturgy successful. <laughs> <laughs> right. What, what, do you, <laughs> what do you mean we? There was no we. And, and, and or people talk about the sort of, you know, great victories in, in American military history using mm. like we I'm like, no, 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 wait, mm. you weren't even on the battlefield. Mm. So there's this interesting selection bias we have. Where we're easily able to attribute ourselves and include ourselves in the we for, I'd say, benign things like sports or even maybe maybe even victorious things. Mm. But we don't include ourselves in the we with respect to failures. Hmm. And this is what's different about what the Bible encourages us to see. I mean, in Nehemiah 9, verse 2, it says, Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. Hmm. Because they saw themselves not as individual Israelites in the present, but they saw themselves as as a people who came to whatever state of affairs they were in uh, when when Isaiah was speaking to them because of their ancestors. Mm. And, And to the extent to which we continue to reduce ourselves to individuals rather than seeing ourselves as members of communities, which is what we all are, this is going to be so much of a challenge. And so what I encourage people to do is to go ahead and own your history mm-hmm. and to own your your community in, in, this, uh, in sociology and psychology. It's often referred to as a community of discourse. Uh, that is that your that you're that you were born into a network of of conversations and language which formed your identity and that and that language that discourse is a part of of a, a series of shared histories and that's how you know who you are and it's okay to own that I mean, Germans are having to, half Germans have to do this in Germany to right. this day uh, because of the history of uh, the Holocaust. Right? To be a German is to have that as part of your history as a as a as a German. You can't bifurcate your German identity from German history. But Americans it's against the law to uh, to to say that the Holocaust didn't happen. <laughs> you can't it, deny it either. Yeah, exactly. But but. Uh, Americans believe that we can selectively identify ourselves with with the histories that got us here. Mm. And and I just encourage people to go ahead and own it. But listen, listen, don't just own the bad stuff. Go ahead and own the good stuff, too. Mm. Right. If if you came from a community of people who made great contributions to to the American story, it's okay to celebrate those, too. But you can't make an idol out of them, right? Because there's also going to be some some weaknesses and some transgressions in there as well. And I think I think that's that's the difference, right? Is that you don't want to idolize your community and and have this sort of reverse utopianism about mm-hmm. the story. 
That's how we make that's how we make our communities in idols. They, they only did good things. And I think we also don't want to only talk about the, the stories and histories that got us here as negative aspirations or, or uh, negative productions of evil, because that's not necessarily always and only true as, as well. That's really, really helpful. Um, going back to your idea of racial solidarity, um, would you say that it's, well, I, I like the idea of racial solidarity because it gets you off the focus of that the only thing you need to do is be reconciled somehow and, and it deals with the, well, then what? Um, and that you're actually there to do something for your community together. And then B, I do, I do wonder if you can do that without ever owning the history. Like, do you, do you think that owning the history is a necessary step or it's a nice step that could happen along the way? I would say that if, if, if communities really want to effectively have an impact in their neighborhoods, and by communities, I mean uh, communities of, of Christians and churches, if, if churches and, and Christian communities really want to work together to do things that are really effective and, and offer real change in their communities, they can't do that unless they know what the issues are. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen again and again and again and again is that people often take their cues about what the issues are from the national stage. Mm-hmm. And that rarely speaks to the specific issues in one's community. So, Whatever it is, the sort of the sort of constellation of issues that that led to what erupted in Ferguson, for example, is a different constellation of issues than some of the racial tensions in other parts of the country, right? And mm. so you want to you want to do the that that sort of overly local historical work so that your racial solidarity is most effective and sustainable. And actually makes a difference, actually does something. I think it's a necessary mm. part of, of moving toward effective progress. And and therefore becomes part of the history that your children and their children can own. Absolutely, because I mean you 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 could probably speak to this more than, than I could. I mean, place matters, right? I mean, mm. it it informs and directs us, it gives us a sense of identity. And I think the extent to which we take more ownership of the place in which we inhabit, we can, we can really figure out ways to, uh, I'd say, I'd say ritualize uh, uh, moving, moving together to, in order to help, in order to help each other. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I, I jokingly mentioned sort of kumbayas and the potluck dinners, but, you know, doing those things with with food and celebration mm-hmm. and joy together, I think, is a really, really good good place to start. Kind of celebrating the fact that we have far more in common uh, than we do have our differences. And what does it look mm-hmm. like to own our commonalities, to recognize our differences, and figure out a way to help each other? Uh, help help our communities and to really reflect the goodness of, of God. Hmm. Well, Dr. Anthony Bradley, thank you so much for your wisdom on this topic. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast. 
exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.